Good morning. I have candle wax on my hands now. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I'm really excited about this, this text. So I just want you to know that. And what I'm about to read is going to be really crazy. And you're thinking, man, he's preaching a genealogy. What is he thinking? He's definitely young and naive. So yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll read, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, and Minadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel. Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Ebiod. Ebiod the father of Elikim. Elikim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Akim. And Akim the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar the father of Matan. And Matan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. <laughs> Woo, man. Let's pray. God, we need your help, and we need your assistance, even in this text. God, what our desire, my desire is that we not have a head full of Bible and a heart full of unbelief. I want a head full of Bible and I want a heart full of belief and joy knowing that Christ has come and He is our Savior. So God, let us believe that after we get through this. Even with this text of a genealogy. God, help us. We love You and we praise You. Amen. You know one thing that just really irks me about the movie culture? Is bad movie trailers. That really, really upsets me. And you're like, well, what an odd thing to be upset about. Now, here's what they do. Here's what trailers do. They're trying to suck you in, right? They're trying to get you to come to the movie. So what they do is that they either spoil the entire plot line, the storyline for you, tell you way too much, or two, they, they put all their good jokes in the trailers. That makes me really upset. You go and watch the movie thinking it's going to be a really good comedy, and they use all their jokes in the trailers. Like, man, I just paid nine fifty for this. So bad movie trailers aren't meant to tell you, one, the whole storyline and give you all the information. They're meant to set the stage for you. They're meant to kind of give you an idea of the plot and the characters, just general idea. It's to whet your taste buds to actually come and see the whole thing, the whole story, the whole movie. That's what a good movie trailer does. And that's what Matthew's genealogy is doing. That's how it's functioning. It's, it's functioning as a movie trailer. It's telling us what this is about. What's the person and purpose of this Jesus Christ? 
That's what this genealogy is doing for us. It's setting the stage saying, hey, this is, this is the idea. This is what you're going to read about in the Gospel of Matthew. This is what you're going to get. Matthew's genealogy here is a good movie trailer. And so, I mean, you, you may have saw on your outline, wow, we're going to do Matthew 1, 1 through 17, a genealogy? Come on, you can't do a genealogy. This is Christmas. You've got to preach a Christmas text. But I, I do assure you, this is definitely about Christmas. This is definitely about Christ. And I want to warn you, just, just a little warning before we get started, is that don't skip the genealogies in the Bible. Don't skip them. Now look, I'm speaking a sinner to sinners. I've made the same mistake. I get in my quiet time, I'm like, oh man, it's Second Chronicles, man. Man, all these lists of people. I can't get anything from this. I'll just skip, I'll go to the Gospels, you know. I, I understand, I know the temptation. You want, you want something that sounds and feels really applicable? So you're like, man, I'm, I'm not doing the genealogies tonight. But let me, let me say this. Don't, don't skip the genealogies. They are chalked full of theology. They're telling us something about God and about His Son, Jesus Christ. So don't skip them. There is intentionality and purpose of genealogies. They're not just kind of copied and pasted in there by their authors. Just like, oh, I'm obligated to put a genealogy in here, so I must do it. That's not what Matthew's thinking. There, there's intentionality in, in genealogies. Let, just consider this with me about genealogies. First, out of the four Gospels, only two Gospel writers include genealogies. And in that, consider this. Their genealogies are not identical. They're structured and they're worded differently. And, and, and just consider this last point, is that, Matthew and Luke, who are the ones who have genealogies, they're in different spots in their Gospels. Matthew's comes right here at the beginning of the Gospel. You've got to read three or four chapters into Luke to even get to his genealogy. But all three of those things are saying there is intentionality in these. The author does not feel like he's obligated to put a genealogy in there. So it's not just background information. It's not just mere chronology there's theology going on here in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So let's not skip over it. Let's unearth the treasures here. And so we're not going to go person by person and me tell you their entire story. We're just going to pick out some gems here and see what does this have to say about Christ's advent. And so you'll see your thesis on, on your outline is this, and it's a long thesis. Christ's genealogy is about God's providential mission to fulfill the Abrahamic and Davidic promises through the birth of Jesus Christ for the purpose of creating a new people for himself. That's almost like a genealogy by itself. But simply it's this, is that Christ's genealogy is about the fulfillment of hope. That's, that's simply it. It's about the fulfillment of hope. And so Christ, Christ's genealogy tells us four things about Advent. So follow me here. Number one is this. Christ's Advent is about a new beginning. Christ's Advent is about a new beginning. It's about a new beginning because Christ is the new creator. And it's signaled to us in the first verse of Matthew. The book of genealogy. That, just, just those words right there are signaling for us as a reader that this is about a new beginning. Because genealogy, the Greek word there, is where we get the word Genesis. That's where we get Genesis. It's the same word. And so what Matthew is signaling is, look, something new is happening here. It's 
A new beginning is happening with the advent of this Christ. He is a new creator and he's come to make a new beginning for people. And I'm not saying that Jesus is a new or better creator than the Old Testament creator. No, no. We believe that the triune God created the heavens and the earth. All were working there. But Jesus gets this title of new creator because he's coming on the scene to do something new. He's coming on the scene to make a new beginning for his people. He's becoming to make a new creation. And so that's talking about us. We, we need to be made a new creation. But you may ask, why, why do we need to be made new? Why, why do we need a new beginning? Well, Matthew is very intentional, intentional about this. We, humanity, we, we, we don't need to be made better or good people. We need to be made new. That's the story of the Bible. People don't need to be made better. We need to be made new. And that's what Jesus is coming to do. And I, I mean, we see that in the Gospels. We see the depravity and evil and hard-heartedness of men, even in the Gospels. As you see Jesus talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, that they're having this discussion about, you know, Pharisees are saying, you know what, what defiles a person is what they eat. That, that defiles a person. Well, Jesus comes back and says to them this, it's not what a person eats that defiles them. Actually, it's what comes out of their mouth. Because what comes out of their mouth is actually from their heart. Jesus is talking about the heart there. He's saying that the heart is sick and hardened and evil. And we even see that in the story of the Old Testament of Israel. We're constantly exposed to Israel's rebellion and sin over and over. They continue to reject God. They continue to go against Yahweh despite His gracious, merciful hand being extended to them the entire time. He saves them from the Egyptians. He sends prophets to warn them. He protects them from their enemies. Yet they continue to worship idols. What is all this saying? It's saying we need a new beginning. Israel and we, well, I mean, we're just like Israel. We don't need self-help books. We don't need new circumstances or new environments. Those don't change the inclinations of a person's heart. We need to be made new again. And that's why Matthew's signaling this. This is a new beginning. It's not a new resolution. I, and you know, we're all familiar with resolutions, right? I mean, we all know what New Year's resolutions. We, it's the time where we get together and we say, hey, I'm going to work out more this year. You know, I'm going to get a six-pack this year. You know, I, I'm going to stop drinking Cokes or I'm going to read more books. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, great and all, but statistics show, I actually read an interesting article on this, 8% of people who make New Year's resolutions actually fulfill them at the end of the year. <laughs> this, was, this one's bad. 25% of people who make New Year's resolutions don't finish to the end of the week. <laughs> I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty, pretty bad. But that is just evidence of the fickleness of a human heart. Is that we don't need new resolutions. We need a new beginning. We need to be made new people. And that's what Christ comes to do. He comes to make a new people for Himself by giving a new covenant and a new spirit and a new heart that changes us now that we're, we are able to obey God and obey His commands because we have a new heart and a new spirit. We're able to believe Him. 
That's what Christ comes to do, is make a new people. And what are these people characterized by? Well, we're studying it right now. The Sermon on the Mount. That's what Christ's people look like. That's what new people, new creations look like. They're concerned about reconciliation. They're concerned about truth-telling. They're concerned with sexual purity. They're concerned with loving their enemies and praying for those who persecute them. That's what a new creation, a new people look like. And that's what Christ has come to make. In the first eight words of Matthew's Gospel, he's echoing the book of Genesis. And we all know the book of Genesis is about beginnings. It's about the beginning. And so Matthew, in saying the book of the genealogy, he's saying, look, this Christ who's coming on the scene, he's coming to start something new. To make a new people for himself. That's what it is about. Christ has come to make a new people for himself. He's come to be a new creator. And I, I mean, this is, and this is Paul's affirmation in 2 Corinthians 5. For anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what Advent is about. Christ's coming. He's coming into the world to do something. He's coming to make a new people for himself. That's what he's doing. The hope for a new humanity is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ's advent. What a beautiful thing. We don't need resolutions and we don't need more laws. We need to be made new again. The second thing is this. Christ's advent is about kingship. Christ's advent is about kingship. It's the hope of a long-awaited Messiah. And I mean, we always, we always reiterate this every, every year during Christmas. Is that Christ is the king. He's coming to be the king. He's the one who was foretold by the prophets. He's fulfilling everything that was said about him. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who was foretold. He is the fulfillment of that. But we have to answer two questions. Is what is he fulfilling specifically here in, in Matthew's genealogy? How is that being signaled? And why does it matter? Well, first is this, is that Matthew wants to make it abundantly clear that Christ is the rightful heir to David, to David's line. He's the rightful heir. And how, how's that? Where, where do we get that? Well, 2 Samuel 7 tells us about that. God gives David a promise. He says, look, there's going to be someone who comes from you. He's going to sit on your throne forever, and he's going to have an eternal kingdom. He's going to reign forever, and he's going to be a good king. Well, Matthew's signaling here, he's saying, this is that guy, this is the second Samuel 7 guy, the one whose Israel has waited for. This is him. This is that king. This is the son of David. And so how does Matthew highlight that for us? Well, let's just kind of walk through the text a little bit, and I'll pull a couple things out. Is that first, he highlights that Jesus is the son of David, even in the first verse, he highlights it twice. He says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we should kind of like pull back and say, there's something odd about that, right? What's odd? Well, Abraham is clearly before David, right? In the line. Well, why is, why is it son of Abraham, son of David? Well, I think there's some intentionality there. He switches up the ordering to show there's prominence on here on David, that Christ is the fulfillment of David's line, that he is the promised 2 Samuel 7 king. He is that king. Let's look at another one. Verse 6. 
and Jesse the father of David the king. Now, there's a number of kings listed here in Matthew's genealogy, but none of them get that tagline, the king. It's because, again, Matthew is highlighting, look, Jesus is in the line of David. He is the fulfillment of that 2 Samuel 7 promise. He is that king. And lastly, look at this one. Verse 17. We get 14 generations. We get that number pop up a lot. 14 generations, 14 generations. What's the significance of that? Well, if you look, Abraham to David, between them, 14 generations. David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. Deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. What a coincidence, right? Well, it's not a coincidence. There's great intentionality here, and, and just consider this, is that there's a practice called gematria that scribes and, and writers use during this time. It's, it's, they put numerical values to letters. So it would be like us doing like A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, so on, so on, so on. So David's name, his name is David, which is consisting of Dalit, Vav, Dalit, that's the Hebrew letters. So Dalit equals 4, Vav equals 6, and then you have another Dalit, 4. What's that equal, Mr. Jim? 14, ding, ding, ding. 14 generations. So he's using the number 14 specifically to refer to David's name. It equals David's name. So again, prominence. It's not just coincidence. Matthew wants to clearly make known that Christ's advent is about demonstrating his kingship. He is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He is this king who's going to have an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, and is going to be a good king unlike all the other kings. And it's because he's coming to do something different. It's, he's coming to save his people from their slavery to sin. He's not coming to liberate them from oppression and things like that. He's coming to save them from something much worse, their slavery to sin. So Christ's advent is about kingship. It's about Christ being the king, the second Samuel 7 king, the good king who has an eternal throne. That's what it's about. He is the hope that Israel has waited for. Thirdly, look at this. Christ's advent is about missions. Christ's advent is about missions. You may be thinking, Wes, okay, you're stretching it here. Christ's advent is about missions. It's kind of an odd point to make about advent. But it has a lot to do with missions. Even with the people that are incorporated into the genealogy. Just look at this. There's four characters that kind of stand out here in Jesus' genealogy. And look at these. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba. Those stick out. Why? Well, one, they're all women. And in genealogies, you don't really get women in genealogies because the line is carried through the male. So they stick out because, one, they're women, but they stick out for another reason, which is more important. They're all Gentiles. They're not part of the people of God. They're not part of Israel. Tamar in Genesis 38 is clearly not a a person who's from the people of God. Most likely a Canaanite. Rahab, Canaanite. Ruth, Moabite. Bathsheba, she married a Hittite. 
They're not part of God's people. So why include them in a genealogy about Jesus? Why include them? It's odd. But I think Matthew is signaling to us something, something interesting, is that he's not only showing that he's the son of David, but he's the son of Abraham. And if we remember the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that he made a promise that there's going to be an offspring that comes from you, and he's going to bless the nations. That's the promise. And Paul in Galatians 3, he connects that to Jesus. He says this, read, I'll read Galatians 3, 14 through 16 for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying this is the offspring singular of Abraham. He is the one who has come to bless the nations. He is this offspring. So Christ's advent is about missions in that he's coming to be a savior for all nations. Not just Jew, but Gentile. And he's showing that just including Gentile women in his genealogy. And we can say that Jesus' whole ministry, the whole gospel of Matthew is about Jesus coming to the nations. So in in Matthew chapter 1, we got the nations here with the inclusion of four Gentile women. And then in Matthew 28, we get the Great Commission. And what does it say? Make disciples of all nations. So we got nations in Matthew 1. We got the nations in Matthew 28. Christ's advent is about Him coming to be a Savior for all nations. No discrimination. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's no slave, there's no free. It's Christ is all and in all, as Paul says in Colossians 3. He's come to be a Savior for all nations. And this is mind-blowing to the Jewish idea. This is mind-blowing. The long-awaited Savior Messiah is not coming to be a Savior for the Gentiles. No, He's going to be a Savior for the Jews. Just the Jews. He's our Savior. He's not for those Dirty Gentiles? Heathens? That's, that's the thought. The Jews think, no, 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 no. This Savior, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, he's coming for us. He's not coming for them. He's coming for us. So what Jesus shows us in his gospel and what Matthew's pointing out is, look, Jesus has come to be a Savior of all nations. Jew and Gentile. And so, and that's, Paul's affirmation in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God's salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and for the Greek. So this gospel is for all nations. And there's a purpose for which he comes to bless the nations. He comes to bless the nations so that they may be a blessing to other nations. That was the purpose of Israel, was that God had blessed them, chosen them as His people, so that they may be a light to the nations surrounding them. And that's the call as God's people for us. That Christ has come to bless us, make us His people, so that we may be a light and a blessing to others, to other people. And look at this last point. 
Christ's advent is about God's providence. You look at some of the characters in this, in, uh, in this genealogy, and they're, they're very odd. Some very odd characters. It's, all, it's almost like reading a cast list of a rated R movie. Some of these people. You're like, man, why would you include these guys? These are terrible people. And look, I mean, I know we all have family trees and people who are currently in our family that we wouldn't all, uh, you know, we would be hesitant to introduce other people. Uh, I, you know, I remember bringing Myra to, to some of my family. I'm like, man, if she can stay with me through this, man, we're going to make it through a lifetime of trouble. If she can meet some of these people and still like me. I think she still likes me. So. But yeah, there's some odd characters in this, in this genealogy. But they're included for this reason. It's a testimony to God's providence. There's terrible people in here. Just consider a couple people. Tamar, incestuous relationship with Judah. Rahab, a prostitute. Bathsheba, affair with David. Uzziah, he's a prideful king who unauthorized burnt incense in the temple. Solomon, a polygamist. Manasseh, he rebuilt altars to idols after his dad had torn them down. And then... They included the exile, which is like the low point of Israel. It's like the worst of the worst. Like, look, why would you include this in your history? Like, include the good stuff. Like, he left out Sarah and Rachel. Like, those are good characters that you kind of want to, like, mention in your genealogy. Like, good people. But no. There's terrible people mentioned in this genealogy. And so you ask the question, why, why include these people? Well, it's a testimony to God's providence that despite all this scandal and idolatry and evil kings and exile, God is powerful enough to bring about His Messiah. Despite everything that's going on in the, the history of Israel, Christ's advent is about demonstrating that God's providence to bring about His purpose, mission, and Messiah despite the bleakest of circumstances and people. They cannot thwart His plan, as terrible as they are. God is still powerful and providential and can bring about His mission and purpose and His Messiah, even through terrible people like this and terrible circumstances like the exile. And so now that we've looked at so Christ's advent is about a new beginning. Christ's advent is about kingship. It's about missions and it's about God's providence. How does this connect? What does this say? What does this mean for me? Now I'll give you four things. Is this. This is under application. First is this. Desire the character of a new creation. So Christ has come to make a new beginning. He's come to make a new people for Himself. And that the blueprint for those new people is the Sermon on the Mount. That's what they are to look like in this world. And so we have to ask ourselves this. Not only... Are we doing these things in the Sermon on the Mount? But do we even desire these things in the Sermon on the Mount? That's, that's the real question. Ask yourself that. Not, do I do these things? Am I loving to my enemies and do I pray for them? No, do I even desire these things? Because that's what reflects a person who has been made a new creation. So do you want these things? Yeah, they're tough. It's tough to pray for those who persecute you. It's tough to reconcile with people. 
It's up to tell the truth sometimes. But do you desire to be like Christ because you've been made a new creation? Do you reflect the work of your Creator, Jesus Christ, who has made you a part of His people and a new creation? Second is this. Let Christ's mission be our mission. Let Christ's mission be our mission. So, as we saw the bookends of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has come to rescue people from all nations. And now the instrument in which He uses to reach the nations is His church. is His new people. That's the way He reaches the nations, is through His church. And so we've been invited to take part in this mission. So let me ask you this, Crosspoint. Let me ask you, do you see the world like this through this lens? Do you view your workplace, your family gatherings, the nail salon, the barbershop, as places and opportunities to advance Christ's kingdom? Do you see those? Or is it kind of like, man, I just got to get in, get out of here, and let's go? We have to put on that lens and say, look, going to the grocery store is not just going to the grocery store. It's about an opportunity to advance Christ's kingdom with whoever we may meet in a grocery store. And so we need to put on that lens and say, is Christ's mission our mission? Do I, do I care about the lost? And, and let, me, let me just go even a little bit deeper and just poke a little bit more. Are we tempted to segregate people into groups that we've deemed undeserving of hearing the gospel? Now you may say, oh, that's crazy. But it's crazy because it's hard to say. And it's hard to think that somebody would believe that. But do we segregate? Similar to what's happening here with the Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, no, they don't deserve a Savior. They don't deserve the Christ. He hasn't come, from, come for them. He's come for us, the Jews. Are we tempted to segregate and say there's people who are worthy of hearing the gospel and there's people who aren't? Is the homeless man, the drunk, the inmate, the terrorist, are they worthy of hearing the gospel? We have to ask ourselves those questions. Because we, we compartmentalize and we say, well, there's people in our society who they don't look like us and they don't act like us. Therefore, they're not worthy of this gospel. But that is not Christ's message. Christ's message is that I've come to save people from every nation, every tongue, whatever they may look like. It does not matter. And so, let Christ's mission be our mission. And remember that sinners come in all Shapes and forms. Employed, unemployed, rich, poor, black, white, American, and maybe not. So let Christ's mission be our mission. A mission to all peoples, of all nations, of all tongues. Whatever, it doesn't matter what they look like. Christ has come to do that. That's what Christ's heaven is about. It's about missions. And third. Let God's providence assure your hearts that nothing is out of control. 
when things seem bleak, uncontrollable, worst case scenario at times, remember that God can bring His King even through a ragtag group of sinners like we see in this genealogy. Nothing can thwart His plan. Just as He brought His Messiah through this line of evil people and evil kings and evil circumstances, He will do the same for us and preserve His people. And lastly is this. Submit to this King. You cannot sit in a position of neutrality right now as you sit and you hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot sit neutral to Jesus Christ. And that's what our culture has become. I don't hate Jesus Christ, but I don't follow Him either, but kind of in the middle, you know. It's not hurt me, I'm not hurting Him, so we're all good. You cannot sit in a position of neutrality towards Jesus Christ. You either sit as one who has been made a friend of God, a disciple of His kingdom, or you sit as an enemy of God. There's no middle ground to this. You either submit to His Lordship or you reject Him and you rebel against Him. And you are His enemy. So, I want to ask this, believers who are sitting in here, Ask, are, are you fully submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are there areas where you're like, ah, that just kind of, that, that gets too close. That's too hard. Let's say, submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all things that you do. And then for the unbeliever that may be sitting in here, let me say this, I, I implore you, please do not walk out of here without submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what, Christmas, that's what Advent is about. It's about His Lordship and His Kingship. It's a very dangerous thing for you to walk out of here and say, it's okay, I didn't respond today. I'll do it later. It's a very dangerous thing. So say, submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that looks like repenting of your sins. Trusting in Jesus as your God, your Savior, and your King. Obeying His commands and worshiping Him with your life. Because here's the reality of what the Bible is telling us about. Is that Advent is about Christ, His first coming, coming as a very humble king in very lowly circumstances, born in a manger. That's His first coming. But here's the warning. His second coming will not be like a lowly, humble king. He will come as a conquering king. To judge the nations. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ while you still have time. He comes as a lowly, humble king. And we need to worship him for that. We need to enjoy Advent because he has come as that humble king. But also remember that his second coming is like a conquering king. And he will come to judge. Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Your word. We thank you that even in genealogies, God, it is still inspired scripture. It is still your word. And so, God, we need to be devoted to unearthing the treasures there. Lord, 
I do thank you that Christ has come. The long-awaited hope and Savior Messiah has come. He has arrived. Let us worship Him. Because we needed Him so. We are undeserving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unworthy. God, you stoop low and you come to us, God in flesh, to save us, to rescue us from our sins. God, I pray that this season of Advent would continually be a reminder of that. That we would not get get caught up in things and trinkets and treasures and toys, but that our minds and our hearts would be set on Jesus Christ and His coming as a king to start a new beginning, to make a new people for himself. Amen.